This is Michael Easley in Context. We want to guard against ghettoizing sexual minorities. The gospel is a universal call. Original sin is a universal distortion. We're not different from each other. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. The culture has given us a whole new set of vocabulary that we as believers in Christ have to integrate. We have to figure out how to talk about these things. Can we be comfortable talking about these issues? As believers in Christ, how do we navigate this conversation with uh, friends, neighbors, uh, perhaps people in our family who are calling themselves gay or transgendered or lesbians or uh, some new label questioning their sexuality. It becomes a perplexing challenge, and it's very important, I think, in context, how we think biblically and theologically, uh, understanding this issue that it's so front and center in the media, in local churches, in Christian publications. We continue our interview with Dr. Butterfield, and as you listen to her responses, pay special attention to some of the phrases she uses so well about unwanted sexual desires or the shame and guilt of a person who has a sexual desire or craving or longing. So let's pick up our broadcast where we left off last time with Dr. Rosario Butterfield. Did the idea of pride, was that part of a funnel for you? Did you get there quickly? It was. I, this whole business, that whole John seven seventeen, that first you obey and then you understand, that was such a paradigm shift for me because, you know, my job was to read and think and then write books that tell you how to read and think. So that was really new information to me. And, um, and it, was, it was really new information to me that because of original sin, this was not a thinking project. See, I love thinking projects. But because I am distorted by original sin, this is not a thinking project. And, one of the things that that really led me to believe later was that, you know, really daily, we need to be thinking about how original sin distorts us and how indwelling sin manipulates us. Because that's also true. That's one of those universal truths. I mean, I don't mean it to be glib when I say we're all born that way. Mm-hmm. But that's what original sin tells me, that it is, it is the one democratizing reality so, you know, after I, st- I started, you know, repenting of pride, because starting with my sexuality was just too scary. Mm. You know, it was just, just too scary. But pride is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And especially because I realized that, for me, lesbianism was not a root sin. You know, that you've got root sins, and then you've got, you've got roots, and then you've got branches, right? And, um, and actually, for me, the, the root sin really was pride. I really genuinely did not want any man having any authority over me or my body at all. I found it deeply threatening. And like a number of women who are lesbians of my generation, you know, we consider our, ourselves informed lesbians because, you know, tried that, done that, not working. So um, I realized that pride and self-defense and self-protection were all kind of working around for me. And so, you know, when I started to repent of, of, of pride, I, I would share that with Floyd, especially Floyd Smith. And this was a special church. But mm. you know why it was special? It was special because it was ordinary. Because it was ordinary. Because people spent ordinary time with each other. 
And one of the things that, um, that I realized after I started repenting of my sin was that my feelings did not change. You know, my feelings really did, did not change. Not at first. You know, they did. They did eventually. But not at first. And nobody in my church said, oh boy, we better farm her out to Exodus. You know, the, the magic potion isn't working. Repentance is supposed to zap her. Nobody said that at all. You know, what my, what my church said is, we repent unto life and then meet the Lord as our risen Savior. And if that's true for me, that's true for you. And that's what it is. And so I was not distracted by some of this over-actualized sanctification that you see promulgated from, well, what used to be Exodus International and is now Restored Hope Network. I wasn't burdened by heresy. But the reality is a number of people who experience unwanted homosexual desire come into the church, are repenting of sin in all the right ways, are not zapped, right? Just like you weren't zapped and I wasn't zapped, but somehow because this sin is so special and so scary and so foreign and so dangerous and so whatever, they're farmed out. And that's the last thing that people need. You know, one of the worst things about unwanted homosexual desire, I think, is probably not the sex you can't have now that you're a Christian. I think it's the loneliness that you experience because the church's model of community is based on family. Even though we are told that the, that the, the nuclear family does not survive to the new heaven and the new earth. Mm. That what survives is our brotherhood and our sisterhood in Christ. So, you know, even though it was a very ordinary, very, you know, small, conservative, reformed church, these were ordinary Christians who, who just were willing to spend ordinary time with me, and a lot of it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about same-sex attraction. We've euphemized a lot of these phrases. Mm -hmm. We have a whole economy of language that talks right. about you know, same-sex attraction. We, we were joking a little bit about the Q now mm -hmm. that we have to add mm -hmm. on, on the equation. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how you maybe differentiate or don't mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. the way we look at other sin. Right, right. You know, it's, it's always so uncanny the way that the Lord uses all of the parts of your life to become a whole creature in Christ. I mean, I just marvel at that. That could just bring me to tears right here. Um, I'm not a very talented woman. I can knit socks. You know, that's, I guess maybe that's kind of talented. But my, you know, my, my, my intellectual specialization, I do one thing. I can size up a book. And I'm what's called a whole book scholar. So my job is not to size up little pieces of the book, but to see if the book has integrity, to see if the parts make a whole. I'm also a 19th century scholar, and sexual orientation was a 19th century invention. It came right out of Freud, and Freud came right out of German Romanticism. And in the history of ideas, German Romanticism is the first time in the history of the world that anyone believed that epistemology could be discerned by personal feeling, all right? I will tell you that epistemology truth claims based on personal feeling is still considered the lowest common denominator. But even secularists would have rejected that prior to the 18th century. So when Freud came, you know, Freud's theory was that what made human, humans human was sexual desire apart from procreation. 
What made you human, says Freud, is not your soul, but your sexual orientation. Sexual orientation from a Christian perspective is a category mistake. And it's not just a category mistake, it's a category mistake that offers an anthropology of the soul that is unbiblical. Because it declares that instead of being a soul-oriented person, you are a sexual-oriented person. And for people who study the history of ideas, these things are important. This is not squishy. This doesn't have fuzzy edges like a stuffed bear. This is a binarism. And so as a Christian who, well at that point, just as someone who identified as a lesbian, who now met the risen Lord, I just, you know, I, I really had to wonder, is this a case of mistaken identity? Oh, I still feel like a lesbian. I mean, it's not about feelings. I, you know, I had a pastor ask me once, you know, when the yuck factor about homosexual sex hit me upside the head. You know, and I had to say, brother, you know what? If, if that's going to be the grounds of whether you consider me a sister in the Lord, you just keep praying. You know, because what hit me upside the head was my union with Christ. What hit me upside the head was that the Bible was a unified biblical revelation. And what hit me upside the head was that I wanted, not only did I want to know what God had to say to me, but I wanted God to hear my prayers. That's what hit me upside the head. Now slowly over time, God did a work in my life in other ways, but that's not proof of the gospel. You know, so, so uh, you know, both is true. You, I, I don't think, I, I am not going to go belly up on the grounds of sexual orientation because it's a category mistake. And in the same way that, uh, that we have any number of other category mistakes, we but, don't. But it, gives, but it gives a license to a, a cultural economy. We've got this language, we've we got have these this tools, language. and we can sharpen those words. That's right, that's right. And so, you know, I, I really, when somebody comes to me and says, well, I'm gay and I'm a Christian, what I need to do is, is find out what that person means. Now, gay, Christian, which do you think is the most important thing I should find out about? What that person means about what it means to be a Christian, or what that person means about what it means to be gay? Christian, no question, no question. And often what you find is people have, uh, have had a, um, a, a kind of manipulating experience in a church where they have you know, said the sinner's prayer, they have felt shame and anger at their own sexual desires, did not know what to do with it. Um, this whole business of praying the gay away, you know what that is? That's praying that God would fix you so you don't need to rely upon grace. That's not repentance. Repentance is different. Because you know, repentance points out the fact that it is only through Christ that we can make sense of the next two minutes, least of all the rest of our lives. <laughs> so this desire to be zapped once and for all, changed, you know, that's maybe what glory's about, but that is not what sanctification is about. So often you find that people have a very, um, have, been, have been sort of handed, uh, peddled, if you will, a false gospel. And part of how usually I hear the peddling of this gospel happened is a, energetic large church wants to add to its numbers any way it can.
woe to us. Because now two things have happened. Not only do we have people who think they're saved but, but might not be, but we have whole cultures of people like this in our church now demanding that we change what the historic Christian church has maintained over the course of thousands of years. Now, it would be one thing to change your mind because of an error, but another to change your mind because of the rallying call of personal experience. Those are two different things. Let's talk about community. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about cliche and community and what community experience is, and you have shared uh, previously. Yeah. This is a big, a big point for you. Yeah, it is. Community is a big point for me. When I was in the gay and lesbian community, you know, somebody's house was opened every night. Every night, you would know where to go for fellowship and food and conversation and just so you wouldn't want to kill yourself. You know what I mean? Whatever. Um, when I became a Christian, I just, I mean, I still I marvel at it. Why we live on a starvation diet is sort of our problem. But why we expect other people to do that is just ridiculous. You know, this idea that you know, once a month your church has a fellowship meal and you know, if you're A through M, you bring a covered dish with a can of cream, of cream of mushroom soup in it, you know, so that you get to glory faster, right? It's kind of ridiculous. You know, that's just not, not right. There's no reason why the church needs to be afraid of being a community. And the ideal place for that is your home. Your home is the ideal place for that. Now, you know, I say these things and people get really fussy and, um, and I don't, I'm not trying to be, na you know, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited or proscriptive, but uh, hospitality is not entertainment. You know, if your house needs vacuuming, ask somebody to vacuum it for you. Uh, you know, it's not, uh, you know, hospitality means that people gather together because we instinctively know who we are one to another. And hospitality is an opportunity, not necessarily for counseling or deep conversations, but doing life together and doing it in the rhythm of life, and not by appointment only. It's where folks know that your house is open that night and the door's open. And you know, if there's cat hair in your food, you know, pick it out, okay? You know, I sleep with that cat, okay? You know, this is, that, that's. You so, were doing really well till. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Till, yeah. till then, but, you were doing really well till then. But, but I will say that we want to guard against ghettoizing sexual minorities. We want to guard against saying, you know, what do I need to do to help my gay neighbor? It's not that that's not a good question, but the gospel is a universal call. Original sin is a universal distortion. We're not different from each other. A question from an individual who struggles with same-sex attraction. On the one hand, they can't feel true to their heart and to God. There's a sense they must choose between God and the church uh, or follow their heart to leave the church and the Bible. And I got this dichotomy. How do mm -hmm. I? And I would, I would love to, you know, how the questions are. You want to challenge some, some language here. That is the battle of original sin. And that is the battle of an original sin that is just hitting you so hard that you're saying exactly what Paul said in Romans seven seventeen: Why do I do what I don't wanna do? It is not I, but sin in me. And so it's so helpful to know 
that you, child of God, daughter of the king, son of the king, are not ontologically the distortion that you feel, all right? Original sin is like going to the state fair and looking in one of those mirrors. You can recognize yourself, but that is not who you are. And so daily, someone who is struggling with any sexual sin, I think, or, or you know, let's say sexual sin pattern or sexual sin temptation, because having a temptation is not a sin. It's a brokenness. It's a vestige of original sin. So we do need firmer language. And that's why I do not like the term same-sex attraction. There is no sin in attraction. I find no sin in attraction. Lust, oh yes. Is it a slippery slope? I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you have to be careful about jumping to those conclusions. Because I think what happens is then people who are battling unwanted homosexual desires are made to feel like they're dangerous. Without meaning to, you might be making them feel that way. So you need to examine too, what's going on in your heart. You know, let me just make the assumption that in this room, there are people who are struggling with homosexual desires. It is never just us chickens, you know, whatever the us is, ever. And not just because I'm here. I mean, I understand that. You know, I'm the big killjoy, but not just me. Um, you will, in any group of Christians, you will meet people who will always struggle with a gamut of temptation patterns. Those are distortions of who we ontologically are and who we will be when Jesus returns or when we die. But here on earth, let us battle together. You know, Christ tells us that some people will get one cross to bear and others will get 10 crosses to bear. We know that sanctification for some might be overwhelmingly dramatic and others slow and painful. That's normal. That's what 1 John prepares us for. We ought not be shocked, but we ought not make people feel like they're dangerous because they're just telling you where they are. So watch what you have said. If you have allowed gay jokes to just run rampant in your world, apologize to people. Don't be afraid to apologize to people. That would go far. And that would go far, not just with believers within the church, but unbelievers. Mm -hmm. If we believe that repentance is unto life and that is, it is a gift from God, it ought not be such a secret. What is this posture of the Christian life? Why is it such a secret? You mentioned uh, the placards of scripture that were highly offensive to you on one side. Mm -hmm. As you look at scripture now, how do you integrate that? Yeah. And yeah. how do you respond? In general, I, you know, I'm, I, again, I'm a whole text scholar. So, so in my world, you would not take a verse from Wordsworth and make that the verse. I mean, I would never say to my students, oh, don't read all of Othello. Let's just read these three verses, right? And yet sometimes Christians do that with the Bible. They read the Bible a little bit like my unsaved neighbors read their horoscope. They have their verse a day, and it's supposed to do some kind of magic to you. I don't know what it is, um, because ver one verse do does no magic for me. The Bible is a systematic conversation. The Bible contains every genre, 
And genre in the Greek means law. And you intuitively know that. I'm getting a text message from somebody, as you can hear the beeping. And when I have time to open this and check this text message, if I scan it for iambic pentameter, okay, that's not going to help me discern what this person is trying to say to me. Especially if this person is saying, pick up your keys in Delta room 37. You know, this will not help me. And yet we act as though every verse of the Bible is to be read the same way. So in some ways, I still have a problem with placard mentality. We are to be students of the whole word. We are to have not just literacy, but fluency. And we are not to use the Bible to shame people. So we have to be careful how we use the Bible. What, when you speak and you're interviewed and um, have opportunity to share, what do you wish you were asked? What aren't you asked that you'd like to talk about? In general, what I would always want to remind people is that original sin is democratizing that we are not to demonize people because of our democratized um, distortion by original sin, but that it is our job to not be careless with it. It is our job to really know how original sin distorts each of us and how indwelling sin manipulates us. Because if we don't know, we are dangerous. What makes us safe one to another is not that we have a shared temptation pattern, and it's you and me against the world. What makes us safe one to another is repentance unto life that allows us to truly live in the blood of Christ, having been baptized into his death and having been raised and promised to be raised with him on the last great day. As I listen again to Dr. Butterfield, I'm struck by her emphasis on original sin. Uh, we might call it the fall, that in Adam's fall, we did all. And we are born into a sin nature. We are all depraved. We're all fallen creatures. There's none righteous, no, not one. It's hard for us as Christians, perhaps if we've been a believer a long time, we look at sins in different ways. A murderer is worse than someone who steals. A person who's a rapist is worse than someone who cheats on his or her taxes. At the end of the day, sin is sin. And while it's hard for us to understand there's no incremental value that God places on it, we are sinners all. Uh, the ground at Calvary is level. I appreciate where she ends our interview because it is where we need to begin that we are all sinners, we all deserve hell, there is none righteous. So what about you and me? First of all, do you know Christ? And if you listen to these podcasts and broadcasts at all, you know we come back again and again to explaining the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the way to be forgiven, that is the way of salvation, it begins our life of sanctification. But the added complexity of living in our uh, present world with gay, lesbian, homosexuality, transgendered questioning issues all surrounding us and being pushed into the churches, how do we respond? We don't want to be uh, placard-carrying, hateful people yelling and screaming at sin, nor do we want to absolve and absorb these lifestyles and say, it's no big deal, it's how you're made. And navigating the Christian life, being sanctified to be the man, the woman God wants you to be, is the, the journey for each one of us, whether it's lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, or the boastful pride of life, money, sex, and power. We're all pulled in certain directions. 
So we begin, first of all, with a long look in the mirror, calling our own sin what it is. We then move to loving the unlovely, that there are people that maybe we don't like their sin choices, their sin desires, their sin inclinations, but let's have empathy for one another. Let's have mutual love and respect. I don't know what your one takeaway is, but one of my big takeaways is Dr. Rosario's reminder that the gay community provides a loving environment for one another. And the church could learn well from that to say, are we loving of co-strugglers? Are we loving of sinners? It doesn't mean we embrace and accept the lifestyle of sin, but we look to them as creatures just like ourselves, broken and in need of a savior. The unlovely whom he loved. He loved you. He loved me. Uh, Can we express that love to people who have very different opinions, very strong opinions about things we may disagree with? This is Michael Easley in Context.